guys, welcome back to another episode of Power to Become the podcast. It's your host, Annie. This week, we have Tim Rarick, a faculty member from BYU-Idaho. He specializes in marriage, family, dating, relationships, and more. So let's get it. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We are so excited. I am so excited. Why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Tim Rarick. And I, <laughs> I've been in the home and family department about 10 years, and I grew up in Lehigh, Utah. Um, I served a mission in Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh mission, and um, met my wife working at Los Hermanos in Linden, Utah. We were waiting tables in 99-2000. We've been married for 20, almost 21 years. So you're a teacher here at BYU Idaho. Mm-hmm. But you haven't always been a teacher. No. 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 So I've been here 10 years. Uh, I was, I actually taught at Kansas State when I was in grad school. Really? So I was, I did a master's and PhD at Kansas State. And then towards the end of my master's degree, the department chair gave me this very unique opportunity to be a graduate teaching assistant. The professor who was one of the most popular professors at Kansas State on campus, she was going to take a like a year sabbatical to write a textbook and do some other things. And she was looking for a replacement. And so for a year, I think it was the last year of my master's degree, which is really crazy that they would take a chance on me. I taught one of the sections and it was 500 students. So both sections were 500 each. Mm-hmm. And then a doctoral student taught the other one. And then when I started my PhD, I applied to a bunch of schools and decided Kansas State, I'm skipping a lot of details, but I decided Kansas State was the best fit for me in the end, stayed there to do my doctorate. And I taught both sections for the three years that I was there during my doctorate. Mm -hmm. So that was between 800 and, or sorry, yeah, 800 to 1,000 students per semester. So I, I got to teach for most of my grad school and my calling Right after my first semester, I finished my first semester of grad school, Bishop calls me and asked me to be the early morning seminary teacher. So I was teaching the gospel for for four years in grad school in the morning, and I was teaching and studying the secular for the rest of the day. And I had my only plan was to be a marriage and family therapist. And then as I finished my master's degree, people kept saying, you need to be a professor, you need to be a teacher. And I was toying with the idea of doing a doctorate. I finally decided to do one. I was still planning on working at a university. I applied to like Florida, University of Florida, West Virginia. I remember applying at um, Dartmouth College. I had all these schools. BYU-Idaho came on the radar. So little did I know, teaching the secular and the sacred uh, was preparing me for BYU-Idaho. Oh my gosh. You know what I mean? It was just so providential. The Lord was was very kind to me. So before that, though, I didn't really have any teaching experience at all, except for like your mission so that's a long way of answering your question. I'm not good at short answers. Hey, that's why we're here. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> so let's start from the very beginning, high school. Okay. Because this is one of my favorite stories about you. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your high school. How were your grades? How was your uh, social situation? Oh, my gosh. I was too social. <laughs> <clears throat> I uh, didn't go to class as often as I should have. I hope my children don't listen to this. <laughs> really, we'll ban it. <laughs> they know bits and pieces. I will reveal the whole story after they're all graduated from high school because I don't want one of them to use a justification. Well, Dad, you were a moron and you turned out okay. I can be a moron. <laughs> yeah, 
Hopefully, Corianta didn't say that to Alma the Younger. You know, his father, like, hey, dad, you were stupid, so, <laughs> right? So, in high school, yeah, I was, I played several sports. Um, I loved socializing. I loved um, hanging out, um, skipping class. I just was not a dedicated student at all. So, my senior year, I had, I think, six or seven Fs. I flunked <gasps> six or seven classes. How many classes did you take? Oh, Probably seven. No. <laughs> I don't remember. I didn't flunk them all. Um, I just remember at the end, they said, if you want to be able to graduate, you need to do all these packets. So like the, where the delinquent or lazy students, um, which I was probably both, uh, had to go to this learning center to do packets to make it. For, the packet was supposed to basically capture the whole course. It was very like competency based. Uh-huh. And so you could almost, in a way, I could have like just tested out of it. But um I have to say, one of the classes I failed was co-ed PE. Isn't that pathetic? That's really pathetic. <laughs> you just didn't go to class? I went, but I went to show off for the girls. Oh. And then I skipped class too, so I yeah. did both. So anyhow, I don't remember if I had to make that one up. I don't know if they have a packet for that. But I, I remember having to go to, I think it was called Alpine Learning Center in Orem, Utah. But I had to, they said, if you don't get these packets done, you won't graduate. Uh, with your class, if you don't get them by such and such date, if you don't get them done at all, you won't graduate, period, from high school. Mm-hmm. I probably had a lot of time to do it. I'm sure they, they said you need to ha- you have several days to get these done. All I remember was showing up the day they were due and cranking them all out in one day. And my last packet, I was – so you had to get a C or higher, or it was either C or C plus or higher in all of them. And I did, except for one, I had a C minus. Mm-hmm. And I remember a guy pulling me into his office and said, um, looks like you got a C minus. Looks like you're not, I, I can't remember if he said you're not going to graduate or you're not going to graduate with your class, which, you know, when you're in high school, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, especially back before internet and smartphones, people actually talked to each other. So we had stronger relationships. <laughs> that's right. Young people, I'm mocking you out there. You don't have strong relationships. You just want to graduate on Instagram. So, <laughs> oh, see, digital native. Um, so... Anyhow, we, I really wanted to graduate my class. And so he asked me a question or two out of the packet that I just got a C minus on. And I verbally answered. And he said, well, that's not what you wrote here. And I remember thinking, I don't remember what I wrote. I just crammed, you know, and spit all this out. He goes, that's not what you wrote here. What you verbally said to me was the right answer. What you wrote here was the wrong answer. And he goes, don't tell anybody I'm doing this. And he went and changed it to my verbal answer past me. And I graduated with my class. I don't know that man's name. I can't remember. I wish I could because he would be honored in Rarick family history. You know what I mean? Yeah. He really, I think he was just so merciful and kind because I didn't deserve any mercy at that point. I was such an idiot. So, but I still remember sitting in high school graduation a little nervous that they weren't going to call my name, that I wasn't going to. Graduate? Yeah. I was all, you know, cap and gown, but. So yeah, I, I, one semester, maybe this will give you some, one semester, I got a 1.4 and my parents just did not know what to do. Like, you seem bright enough. <laughs> I was just so obsessed with socializing, sports, having fun, self-absorption, which is not too uncommon for teenagers to struggle with. I just had an extra dose of it, I think. So... So you graduated. Yeah. Then I, then I went on a mission, uh, what, uh, about a year later. 
And did you know that you always wanted to be a marriage and family therapist? Did you say that on your mission or oh, in college? Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, you learn more about yourself as you go along, and as you should, especially on your mission. But I, I started being a kind of a UPS driver right after my mission. It wasn't UPS. It was called Airborne Express. They're a smile, smaller outfit, but I had a delivery route. That was good. I wasn't going to college, but I was making decent money. It was a full-time job. Um, I was trying to saving up for college because my parents said I've got to pay for it. Um, so I saved up to be able to go, and I enrolled at UVSC. Now it's U- Utah Valley University. Okay. And it, they were that was in the time when they'd just become a four-year school. It, they were the only place that would take me because I, 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 one of the so you have the SAT and the ACT. This shows you how ignorant I am. One of them I skipped. The other one I only did partially because my family was going on a vacation. I'm like, I don't care about this in high school. So I had to go to a school that said, do you have a pulse and a birth certificate? We'll take you. And that was UVSC at the time. And I had to take the math, the introductory math, to prove that you can go to college. and You don't even get college credit for. So you have to pass that. And then you can take the introductory college math. So I took that and I enrolled in that and I enrolled in music because I was in a band, a, a very small band right before my mission. And then my one of my best friends and I decided we'd form a band after we both got off our missions. So we formed a band, which, by the way, became an award-winning band. Really? Well, we won BYU Battle of the Bands. And even though only like two of the members of the band went to BYU. Anyhow, that was, that's, a, that's, that's another story. But um, so I enrolled in music, uh, introductory to music. I thought, maybe I don't really like music because I played the piano and the guitar and at that time, I changed jobs to working at Los Hermanos Mexican restaurant in Linden, Utah. This yes. is not a plug for their food. It's not bad, but um, but yeah, that was a that was a melting pot for everybody working there. Was like between nineteen and twenty nine, or so, you know, in that pocket there. Mm-hmm. We all just became really good friends. It was like our own little singles ward. We hang out together really? on the weekends. And, so during that time, I was taking these two classes, paid for it out of my pocket. I still remember paying 600 and something dollars. That's how it much cost back then for two. Back in my day. But <laughs> well, we had to pay for two classes out of pocket. So you'd think there's more incentive. You've served a mission. You've learned your lesson, dude. You paid for it out with your own money. And I got an F in the math and a D minus, <laughs> best of my recollection, in, the in intro music. Math, right? Intro math F. <laughs> Why? Because, whoa, freedom, social life, you know, I'm in a band, I was too busy building my own kingdom, you know what I mean? (laughs) If I could put it in those terms. So, yeah. Then I don't think I took classes, that was fall semester. And then winter semester, I I started dating with my wife. We dated, broke up, dated, broke up, dated, engaged. That was our pattern. Oh, wow. So not not like straightforward. No, no, no. I, I dated her and I felt like I was, I was willing to kind of, be vulnerable and put myself out there. I get emotionally intimate too. Back then, I would get too fast, um, and so I'd share a lot. And she wasn't ready. She's very much more introverted and slow to warm up, and I wasn't respecting that. So I broke up. I'm like, this isn't working. I gave her a really bad analogy. Took her to a sandwich shop after we dated for about six weeks, and I said, you know, I think our relationship actually it's a really good analogy. Just mean. Mm, I look back. I'm like, that's pretty appropriate, but you're a jerk. So uh, it was. <laughs> I feel like our relationship's like a fire and we're in the wilderness. And I feel like I'm, you're warming your hands by the fire while I'm collecting all the wood. And I'm getting splinters in my hands, you know. And, she, and she, she, she was so like gracious about it, almost kind of like, whatever. 
all right, you want to break up? That's fine. I'm like, oh, you're supposed to be more heartbroken. Never mind. We're back together. I changed my mind. I'm leaving you. You're not leaving me. So no, I didn't. I didn't change my mind. But we broke up. Um, still remained friends. We still worked together. Mm-hmm. And then a few weeks later, I won't get into those details. We got back together and. Um, Basically, I was chasing her mm-hmm. the first time, and then we got back together, and then she was chasing me more because I was keeping my options up. I wasn't two-timing her. We, it was understood that we were still dating other people, but we were primarily dating each other. Mm-hmm. And then she broke up with me. She's like, I don't think this is working. I think she wanted me to invest more, and I was now gun-shy because of the, our first round yeah. one. The whole fire and splinters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I still had the splinters in my hands. <laughs> I, you were still recovering. I was, yeah. <laughs> Trauma from all that wood um, and frozen hands. So we really got back together. The third time we got back together, that's when we both opened up to each other. Like we really got to know each other beyond coworker, friend at a much deeper level. And I thought, holy cow. And I remember having an ironclad moment with the drummer for the band I was in. And he's like, he knew, I, he knew Jody, my wife, pretty well because she came to our concerts and we hung out, we all hang out together. And I remember him saying, Tim, uh, the girls you dated, Jody really balances you. You're like this massive extrovert, and she she helps offset you really well. And she and I, boy, he's still a good friend. And you know, I should have named my son after him for that moment. So we got back together and really got to know each other at a deeper level, and ended up getting engaged and married. And it's 21 years later. I tell you that story because back to the grade situation and back to the schooling situation, I didn't go to the next semester. We were dating that time. We got married that summer. I took four classes still out of, I think some of it was out of pocket. Some of it was with Pell Grants because I was married now. Mm-hmm. Took four classes. I got a three nine. What changed? Uh, my focus. I was married. And I, I, I really got to stop being an idiot I have to step as a, up as a role I think it took away the social aspect I would it's like some people might hear this like oh he stopped having fun it wasn't that way it just helped me wake up out of my self-absorption and realize this band is fun but that's it this isn't what this isn't my calling in life yeah. and I have a responsibility to this woman and so we'd still socialize and do fun things together but I I think it brought me back to some of the things I learned on my mission about what my purpose was, so. I actually really like how you said that your wife really balanced you. What is like something that you would tell someone going to college right now? Maybe trying to find the one. Um, and you're a marriage and family therapist too, so I feel like you have a lot of- Well, that's my field. Yeah, it's your for the, for the For all intents and purposes, but um, I would say, there's a lot I would say, but I'll see if I can boil it down to some simple principles. The first one is that um, you said finding the one. And I don't think you meant it this way, but there's this, uh, I, I remember I did some research on emerging adults several years ago. And the, the emerging adults are technically 18 to 25 year old. And I think they're expanding that now because adolescence <laughs> is being elongated. And it was about somewhere between 85 and 92, I can't remember what it was, somewhere in that pocket of emerging adults believed that there was a soulmate somewhere out for them. So that would be BYU-Idaho student age, right? And I I would say uh, that's a dangerous philosophy to believe in. 
because out of 7 billion people on the planet, you have to find the one that is overwhelming odds to find that one who's meant to be with you. That's a dangerous philosophy. I tell my students, if you believe in that philosophy, you should move to China because your odds are the best because you got the highest percentage of the population there or India, not here. Now, unless you want to find a Latter-day Saint, then, right? And I've just learned that the Lord doesn't work in statistics or in numbers like that. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. But so the first thing is I put aside world beliefs, ideologies, and philosophies that are built on a faulty premise about dating and marriage. Um, one of my favorite phrases is choose your love, love your choice. So you get to decide who you marry. But um, and uh, did you ever take the class prep for marriage from Brother Ratcliffe? You probably didn't because you'd remember if you did. Not that everybody listening to this podcast can enroll all at once, but you've got to take that class at some point from Brother Ratcliffe. Because in that class, you learn, uh, you read this book, How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk. Yes, I did take that class. Okay. Um, so in that is the relationship attachment model. And here's the basic advice I would give is um, it, it's like a five channel stereo, almost like an equalizer you'd see. When you're trying to equalize some sounds, you got the bass on the left side, the treble on the on the right, the sliders that go up and down, and then the mids and the, the three in the middle. And if you think of it that way, it goes from bass would be tr uh, no, and then you move to the next one, trust, and then rely, and then commit, and then touch on the last one. Mm -hmm. The advice I would give is that you shouldn't trust somebody more than you know them, and you shouldn't rely on them more than you trust them. And you shouldn't commit to them more than you rely on them. You can see this ascending order. And then you shouldn't touch them more than any of the previous four. Um, and so and when I say that uh, the Lord doesn't work in statistics, I've had many TAs, and most of them have been female because most of my students are female. Over the last 10 years, I've had many TAs who have graduated single lamenting that I just lost my best chance. If I can't, if I can't get married at BYU, I do. How am I going to get married? And I have seen, uh, maybe there's been one or two exceptions to this. Everyone who said that has gotten married in often obscure locations, finding somebody through random things. I was just talking to one of my TAs who graduated two years ago. She's finishing her master's in marriage and family therapy. Mm -hmm. And she said the same thing. She's going to get, she's getting married in August or September. I think it's September. Met him through mutual and he happened to be visiting the state where she was living it was just so random. The Lord doesn't work in man's statistics. Like that statistically seems impossible. So don't get wrapped up in that. So many of them have found a spouse. And this is true for guys too. But I would say, uh, yeah, don't hyperventilate. And I would also say don't have your self-worth be built on your marital status. The Lord doesn't want you to view it that way. The brethren don't want you to view it that way. And that is just walking on thin ice. To have any external indicator of your worth relied on dependent well, I guess have your worth dependent on some external indicator your body type your marital status your GPA those things matter but not though not your worth has already been determined you know what I mean so God loving us has already been determined what ha what's yet to be determined for us is how much we're going to love him so in the search for a spouse one more thing I will say I marry somebody very different from me and I've talked to some BYUI students who are like, I want to marry somebody who's, I'm into rock climbing and I want her to be into rock climbing. I'm into this and I want her, I'm like, okay, um, Elder Kimby Clark, who was the president of Kimby Clark here at BYU Idaho, he used to say, throw away your lists of like 
I want this and this and this and this. And I don't think it means you don't want to have standards, right? If you want to marry somebody who's worthy to go to the temple, it's actually becoming a disciple of Christ rather than just doing it, going through the motions, because anybody can fake anything. Um, then, then I think what he means is if you have a list such as she needs to be a rock climber, uh, she needs to really like the band Coldplay, or, you know, I know that's a little old school. She needs to really be into, what's the more modern, 21 Pilots, my son's favorite band. Um, she, you see what I mean? Yeah, that's really specific. specific. And, I, and no offense to everybody listening, but that's also narcissistic. I need to find somebody who's into things that I like. Marriage isn't about you. It never has been. It's been about your spouse, God, your children, and the community, right? It's a post of responsibility. One of my favorite talks on marriage is Why Marriage, Why Family by Elder Christofferson. And some people just view it as like, I need to find somebody who I can just have fun with. Fun's important, but not in the way people might think it might be. So I married somebody who I, I was into sports. I even played tennis in college. Um, I wanted to play basketball in college and I got hurt. Um, and I don't know if I would have anyway, but I was going to try try out. I was really into sports. I, I still like sports. I like to play them. I just don't obsess over them like I used to. Play music. My wife is not really musical at all. She doesn't know how to play one instrument. And I'm not saying that in a demeaning way. She's not all that athletic or coordinated. I think she could be. She's just not interested in it. Yeah. Um, so we had, and I'm very extroverted. She's very introverted. Um, so we had very few similar interests. We had very similar values though. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we come together and we've complemented each other. So try not to find the female or the male version of you. Um, you might find them, but that shouldn't be your number one priority. I think Christ-like attributes, covenant keeping, uh, are like paramount. And then follow that pattern of know them more than you trust them, trust them more than you rely on them, and so forth. So, boy, that was way too much information. Well, I, I want to ask you one more question with what you just said. How would, like, obviously, like you said, like, those differences complement one another, but how do you make that work when you're so different? Um, I think you just have to have a soft heart. And if I think real love um, is outward facing, it's not inward facing. So if I'm outward facing, if I'm humble and I really love my spouse, for example, I hear young couples say this, what do you love about your husband or your wife? And they'll usually say something, not usually, I don't know if usually, often I hear young couples, and I fell into the same trap. When I had my first couple of years of marriage, I'm sure I did the same thing. What do you love about your wife? Oh, she just brings so much happiness into my life. She does this for me. She makes me want to be a better person. She does this. And it's usually all about them. My wife does this for me. And even if she makes you want to be a better person, to me, um, there's too much self in that. And that's, a, I think, a natural evolution of love. Um, so... I've been trying to focus the last several years of why do I love my wife? And it's not conditional. Like I love her because she does these things, which almost like the subscript of that is if she stops doing them, I won't love her as much. You know what I mean? So love is a choice. There's a great book by Elder Lindsay Robbins written called love is a choice. Those differences can drive you apart or they can bring you together. You can be two puzzle pieces that are very different that fit together. The difference between two puzzle pieces that are made to fit together, what makes them fit together? 
I can have two puzzles that I, or pieces that I know actually fit together, but if I don't turn them the right way and get them proper oriented towards each other, then they're not going to fit. I think that's what drives couples apart is their differences. They let them, the pride comes in and they start to think, well, I deserve this or I'm better than you because I have this um, characteristic and you don't. Or this. So I'd say uh, that humility and really have outward facing love. I've learned so much from my life. I've always said she helps me speak up and I help her or not. I help her speak up and she helps me shut up. And it, the goal shouldn't be that the two of us have equal talking time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which I've learned how to listen better because of her. But um, I think, you know, pride would stop, blind me from seeing her good attributes and learning from them. And just like it, was, it would work in, from her direction, to, from her to my direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, Pride's always the issue. The number one, the number one cause of divorce is not sex, money, irreconcilable differences. Those are all things that do come up and they are problems. The number one cause for divorce is selfishness and pride. That's at the root cause of all of those. Now I'm not saying both parties have it, but at least one party. If, if it's an extramarital affair, there's selfishness and, or pride or both. That's, that's why I think President Benson and Elder Uchtdorf have said it's the original sin, it's the gateway sin. Um, so anybody listening, if you're struggling in your marriage, it doesn't just mean that, I mean, that could sound offensive if you don't understand what I'm saying on the surface. Yeah. But uh, I think that's, that's creeped into my marriage plenty often. I think it's such so. a natural thing for everyone. Well, I, ho I hope there's something in that blabbing about dating and courtship. I just, if we start with the wrong premise about what it really means to love, what it means to get to know someone and how, um, what, what marital status even means. If we start with the wrong premise, we're already in the wrong direction. So Joseph Smith once says, if we start wrong, right, we, it's easier to get things right later. But if we start wrong, it'll be hard matter to get things right. You can, but it's going to be a lot harder. You were on the board. No. Yeah. You served on the board of the state department of health and welfare. Yeah. Still do. For much to Idaho's chagrin. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so how did you get involved in that? Because you say that the governor of Idaho appointed you. This is probably the summary of anything I've gotten involved in. And it came to pass. <laughs> <laughs> so it came to pass that somewhere along the way, I met Senator Brent Hill, who was the president pro tem of the Idaho State Senate. He just retired from doing that after for many years. And at one point, I got done with my sabbatical in D.C., working at Catholic University of America and doing some other things out there. I got back and he he called me up. He says, there's an opening on the board for your health district, which is District 7 here in Idaho, uh, Southeast Idaho. Mm -hmm. um, and the governor is looking for someone who he could be a good fit. And he goes, I, you're the first one I thought of. Do you want to do it? And I said, no. I, I said, well, said actually, no? I, said, I said, let me think about it. Okay. Because I... I had I have a lot of things I have uh, opportunities to do things and I have to be selective, mm -hmm. um, and I want to make sure that if it's going to take away from my family, it better be worthwhile and that my wife's behind it. And I had to really think it through. I honestly didn't want to because I was like I go to Boise every three months for meetings. I don't know. I'm not a public health expert, even though under the Department of Health and Welfare is child and family services, mental health, a lot of things that are in my wheelhouse. You know. Um, so <clears throat> Todd Hammond, who is a religion 
faculty here. He used to be a state representative in Idaho. Todd came to my office one day to ask for something. He was borrowing a book or something from me. And I was at, a, I was at that point decided I'm not going to do this. This just seems like a lot of work and I don't think I'd have much of an impact. And I felt very inadequate. Yeah. So he was in my office and I just kind of brought it up in passing. And then he just got, and he's pretty a laid back guy. If you know Todd, he's like, oh, Tim, you're such a good guy. Just, you know, oh, just love your brother. I mean, he just so, he just, yeah, I, I, I admire that man. Um, but he got pretty bold more than he usually does and just told me that's that I need to do that. And I, I think he was inspired because I needed that shaking to wake me up. And so after that, I went back and told my wife and we both felt maybe I should do this. And I felt even more of a confirmation that I should. So I've been doing that for four, three or four. I don't know. I've lost track. I think it was 2018. So it's been about three years and some change. And that's not the only organization that you're part of. You're part of the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. I've worked with them. and I've presented for them a few times. Yeah. Educate, empower kids, mm -hmm. Native American fatherhood and families, and many others. You also have a blog called mm -hmm. Family Good Things. Mm -hmm. So you've had all these amazing opportunities to get involved in different organizations. What would you attribute that to? Is it just divine intervention or would you have any advice for uh that's a good question that that one's a tough one for me because i didn't set out to do really any of this um i didn't set out to speak at the united nations <laughs> not at all let's talk yeah. about that so you spoke at the united nations yeah. in new york city on... um several times Usually in father-daughter relationships because okay. it's – so they have different commissions or treaties that are throughout the year. And you've got the General Assembly in the fall, which most people know about. One of their bigger commissions is the Commission on the Status of Women. It's been around for like 60 years. It's to promote gender equality and women empowerment throughout the world. Conclusions, but we agree on that premise that that's an important thing, especially since I have three daughters and four sisters. And 85% of my students are female and – right. I have six moms. I'm just kidding. But, um, but so I'm, I'm, I, I agree with them on that. So I've, I've spoken many times on how father – so it's, it's usually a different focus each year, but it's always father-daughter relationship. There's a lot of maybe second or third wave feminists there who are not – do not have favorable views of men or fathers. So I try to bring in the research and maybe the heart of fatherhood to help them see how – one of the best ways to empower your girls is to get bring dads back into the equation since they're often absent. So usually it's either about how to empower them for education, dad's role in helping them avoid sexual exploitation, make healthier choices in their life, self-worth, mental health, and all those things. But yeah, I didn't seek I didn't set out to do that. People always think, well, what ladder did you have to climb or who did you have to call? I'm like, uh, it found me. Really? Just like one thing led to another? Yeah. that's Every one of these has a story behind it. But I think to answer your question, it was, what was it? First Nephi chapter 4. I was led beforehand not knowing the things which I should do. Nevertheless, I went. And God kept... And then there's principles that I had to follow while I did that, right? When it comes to networking and, and humility and uh, knowing what to, what to do, what not to, how to connect the students in... And, so there's a lot of lessons I learned along the way, but I don't think I should deserve any credit for it. I, I still am grateful that I have been able to speak to 
the countries of the world, and my students have been able to as well. That's right, because you've so, been to Asia, Central America, Europe, all over the United States, talking about fatherhood, family policy, sexual exploitation, technology, and many more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, 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 okay, so that's, again, one thing led to another. So <laughs> I'll give you an example. So how did that happen? So when I was in D.C., I was working on a research synthesis paper with Pat Fagan, who's the founder of the Marriage and Religion Research Initiative. So that was one thing I was working on. But then I was also collaborating with a bunch of people. I, had, I met a guy while I was there uh, who's in charge of, he's the executive director of the Love and Fidelity Network at Princeton University, which is trying to promote a lot of the same things I am and my colleagues are and my students. And he invited me up to attend their annual conference just to get a lay of the land that maybe I'd want to bring my students or invite them to go. And I went and I was just blown away because these most of these are Ivy League students, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and some from other smaller colleges. And they brought in all these really renowned speakers on topics such like uh, the importance of gender in families and understanding gender differences and gender and gendered parenting, mothering and fathering, or uh, the importance of, you know, how to avoid the hookup culture and not get caught up in just sleeping around and cohabitation and all that. So stuff that our gospel teaches quite clearly, but they're doing it in a very secular way. So I thought, wow, they invited me to come back the next year and speak. I brought Kevin Green, my colleague, and I brought about 10 students they asked me to speak. I spoke on how the, the over-sexualized hookup culture is hurting the father-daughter relationship and how that relationship can actually hurt the hookup culture and how we can make a dent in that. So I, I spoke on that. Um, while I was there, I met this fantastic group of people called CARP. They're um, part of the Unification Church, but they also believe in the same things we do about marriage, family, gender, um, life, about um, love and all those things. And then they say, will you speak at our conference in at UNLV? Because they're based out of Vegas. It's a worldwide organization, but this group is based in Vegas. That led to, so that led to, oh boy, so it's just one thing led to another. The speaking in other countries, I was asked to speak in Moldova. That's because of some people I've met from another thing. Oh. And I was asked to speak in uh, Central America because Clay Olson, who's the founder of Fight the New Drug, um, who I, I work with Fight the New Drug often on Clay Olson's a good friend of mine. Uh, he he recommended, he, he spoke down there on pornography and they wanted someone to speak on family issues and family policy. And he's like, I know a guy. And so then I went down there and spoke in Guatemala. I didn't seek any of them out. God was good and many of them were intimidating and I still felt like I have no business being there. When I spoke in China, I got the standing ovation from 800 kindergarten, uh, Chinese kindergarten teachers about some things that I taught about child development. And I, and I don't think I deserved it. I don't, but they were just so kind. And while they were coming up to me and thanking me afterwards in broken English, my wife was on my shoulder and just said, it's only Tim, guys. It's just Tim. I mean, come on. And she's totally right. I think a lot of people could have done, can do, or could have done what I've done. I just think you, we have to be willing to walk through the doors the Lord opens for us and then be constantly improving ourselves to make ourselves more useful for him. And just like thinking about the amount of time and effort and dedication that you've put into this study of marriage and family, and I think that is so impressive. Because, yeah, anyone could do it, but the amount of time, you've spent a lifetime studying this. Well, 
if if you if you count the first eighteen years when I was a really bad student, no, I wasn't. Hey, it was an internship. Yeah, oh sure. <laughs> yeah, that I failed miserably, but yes, sure. <laughs> well, next yeah. I want to talk to you about the Raise app that you oh, yeah. are coming out with. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. So speaking of Clay Olson, he is a visionary, and he's always coming up with these brilliant ideas of how to get a eclectic group of people together. To, to help use a technology um, and best practices, just eclectic and like social scientists, um, web de- and app developers, uh, marketing gurus, uh, video graphic design. I mean, all these people together for a cause. That's why Fight the New Drug is so dang effective because he's not, he's not a neuroscientist. He's not a relationship expert when it comes to like the effects of pornography, but he knows how to put it. I view him as Nick Fury of the Avengers. Does Good that make analogy. sense? So he knows how to get all these different people who have different powers and abilities to come together for a common cause. And so Clay Olson is Nick Fury, Director Fury. And he even wears a patch. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you're kidding. No, no, he doesn't. But um, he asked me to be part of this group to create an app. It's a topic I'm very passionate about, especially since I have children. I have three teenagers right now. They're in the thick of it. Smartphones, digital technology, Wi-Fi, you know, social media, streaming movies and videos. I'm not against any of those things, but it's hijacking a generation. Um, and it's, it's hurting families, it's hurting marriages, it's hurting child development, it's hurting learning, physical development, social development, not because it's inherently bad, but because we're misusing it. So um, he said, I want to create this app called Raise, like I'm raising a child, R-A-I-S-E. So the way I describe it, it's an app for digital immigrants raising digital natives. And uh, should be released in, I think, August this year. My hands are primarily in the screen time balance video scripts and the inappropriate content. But we collaborated all together for over a year to work on this. And and I think it's going to be fantastic. That is so exciting. I think, not that I'm aware, I don't know if there's any app like that to have so much access for parents to understand what's going on. Most parents are ignorant, not stupid. There's a difference. Stupid means you know better, but you don't care. Yeah. And I don't know if stupid's the right word. Foolish might be better. Foolish. Most parents just don't know better because this is new territory. Yeah. I think the word that I think of when I hear all this is very intentional. Yeah. It's a very intentional lifestyle of not just going with the flow of the way of the world, but it's being intentional about how you want to parent, what kind of relationship you want. If you don't, if you're not intentional, then you may fall into the trap of what the Lord warned the early saints. Even Joseph Smith says, the wicked one cometh and take away the light and truth because of the false, because of wickedness and because of the false traditions of your fathers. We tend, if we're not, if we're not careful, we will act out of tradition rather than out of truth. And, and some of our traditions will have truth in it. But if you just kind of I'm not going to be intentional. Well, I was raised this way and I turned out okay. That's not intentional. It's kind of mindless. You know, that's you one know? of your, I checked out your blog, Ashley, before. Oh. This, and that's one of your posts. Yeah, I've got, I always have four questions. I, and they're snarky. I don't mean to be mean, but I have to, I have to kind of, I don't go for the jugular, but I almost want to ask these questions. So my four questions are, how are you defining okay? Maybe it's five questions. How are you defining okay? Don't you... Don't you want better than okay for your children? 
Do you think you could have turned out better than okay had something else been done? Do you think you turned out okay in spite of that, not because of that particular belief or practice? And if you're willing to throw out what evidence and doctrine are both showing to continue to repeat the traditions of your fathers, are you really okay? (laughs) That's the snarky one. (laughs) So I'm not saying that people, and I always tell my students, don't throw out everything you learn from your parents. Please keep the good stuff, but be intentional about discerning light and truth from your past. Mm -hmm. Hold on to those things which are good and true, uh, whether it's uh, evidence or doctrinal perspective or both. But be willing to let go of something. Um, The psychoanalyst Alice Miller once said, and I think this is quite brilliant. I don't think it's the only reason why we hold on to um, ideas like grim death, even though we don't have anything to support it other than tradition. But she says, uh, many parents have an unconscious, almost unaware need um, to believe that everything their parents did to them in raising them was always informed, always well-intentioned, um, and always in the again always in the best interest of the child. It's too threatening for many parents to believe um, that their parents weren't always well informed or always well well intentioned, or they you know. So to erase any doubt, we continue to do the same things to our children, our parents did to us, because it's too threatening to our our well being or our, our our identity. So um, so I'm sensitive to that. I, I'm still rooting out things that I need to root out from my upbringing, but I'm still holding on to the, the fantastic things. I was I'm blessed with goodly parents in every sense of that word. Yeah. Um, but they'll be the first ones to admit that they screwed up in some ways. All we have is mortals raising mortals. Good heavens, nobody had perfect parents. So we just have to be willing to hold on to the good and, and let go of the bad while still honoring our parents. I love that. And I have one more question before I let you go. Okay. What has given you the power to become who you've become? It's a good question. And I've already alluded to becoming earlier in our discussion because two of my favorite talks on becoming are the challenge to become from President Oaks. Wow. October 2000 General Conference. That's a landmark talk. And the other one is one of the best parenting talks is what manner of men and women ought ye to be, which you had to read in my class um, from Lindsay Robbins. I, I really think, I don't know if anybody can become what they're supposed to become without Jesus Christ. I, I really can't see how that's possible. With his strengthening, enabling power, that helps me do things that I otherwise could not do. All the experiences I've talked about, overcoming seven Fs and uh, flunking out of my first semester of college. Um, the more I turn to him, the more he opens up doors for me to do things that I don't think I have any business doing, but he's like, but you're going to do it and I'll help you. That's more than just a behavior. That's my heart and attitude has changed because of him. Um, I see things differently. It's not just I do things differently. One of my favorite quotes on that is also from Elder Del G. Renland. It's actually this quote's on my door. I, I'm probably going to slaughter it. But he says, our Heavenly Father's goal in us, you know, returning back to him and in the plan of salvation is not just to do what is right. He wants us to choose to do what is right. Our heart has to be into it. He said, Then he says something to the effect of, God doesn't want us to be like his pets chewing on his celestial slippers in the celestial living room. 
No, he wants us to become like him and join him in the family business. And that's more than just a behavioral change. And I have so much more I need to change about myself. But Jesus Christ, because of the, I guess, sanctification, which is cleansed from the effects of sin, justification, which is being pardoned from sin, which I have to, I have to seek for daily, and then the grace or the strengthening and enabling power, which helps me to overcome, do things that I otherwise couldn't do on my own power. And I still believe that power is available to people who are secular. I have a brother who's atheist. The Lord's given us all capacities and gifts, right? Atheist, agnostic, Jewish, Muslim, Latter-day Saint, Baptist, Catholic. We all have, we're all God's children. And I've just, I really think all credit really goes back to the Savior because everyone has the light of Christ. And I think the Savior helps people out do things that they couldn't do over and over again, even if they haven't made covenants. Does that make sense? They still have access to him. I think we have greater access with covenants. In fact, I know we do. Not because we're better, but that's just a, we have greater access to his power. Um, so... Jesus Christ gets all the credit, but if, if I, then he's had instruments that he's placed in my path. They were all instruments in Christ's hands, whether they knew it or not. So he still gets the credit. So that's what I credit to. Well, thank you so much for letting us play on the part of the podcast.